to Percussion Perspectives, a podcast by Henrik Knapp or Larsen and Håkon Stene. Each episode of Percussion Perspectives features one or more musical artists in conversation about musical education, practice and aesthetic and sociological perspectives. In this episode, I talk with percussionist and performer Ayun Huang. She is head of percussion program at the University of Toronto, enjoys a musical life as soloist, chamber musician, researcher, teacher and producer, and she is most of all an expert in percussion theatre. Her work on the subject being published in Cambridge Companion to Percussion and Safe Percussion Theatre. Ayun is committed to creating a vibrant new music community for the next generation, and we talk about subjects as her background, theatrical percussion, memory in motion, transplanted roots, symposium, and sustainability, both concerning the new works written for smaller setups and the way we travel as artists. First of all, welcome here, Ayung. It's a pleasure you want to participate here in our podcast. And um, I have a few questions about your artistic profile. Um, so first of all, what is the most important artistic threat in your career? Wow, that's a difficult question. I don't know if I can break it down to a single item that that's the most important threat in my career. Um. I guess creativity. So the idea of creativity, um, the idea of always wanting to try something new has been sort of like a, a source and a fuel for me. Not necessarily playing percussion per se, but just the idea of wanting to experiment and wanted to work with people and to make something new. I think that has been a source of um, energy for me. Yes, and I could see you play with on many different instruments that are also not exactly percussion. So is is that what gives you certain inspiration or? Yeah, you know, of course I started playing um, very traditional stuff. I mean, my first instrument was the piano and then I play the flute. And after that, I started playing the marimba. I love the sound of the marimba. So the first time when I heard xylophone, when I was like maybe 10 and I was determined I was going to be playing the xylophone. And, and um, I came from this very, not, not a small town, but um, at the time when I was growing up, um, I'm, I was born in Taiwan. So um, when I was a kid, n nobody played percussion in my city. I come from this city called Kaohsiung, which is like in the south. So I'm one of the first percussionist in my city and I was very lucky so I was playing the flute and piano so when I was in high school a, a teacher returned from France and he agreed to like come down to where I live to teach me plus other kids that were in the school system so I was it and then my form so my formal trainings really started when I was in high school Prior to that, I was like taking lessons um, once a while. So I was flying to to the capital. I was flying to Taipei to take lessons when I was younger. Um, but really sort of my 
kind of obsessed way of、um, with practicing and with doing percussion was mostly in the high school years. Then I was very lucky. Then my family decided we would、um, move to Canada. So after high school.、Um, We moved to Canada, not knowing what was there for me, sort of musically. And then、um, we moved to the city of Toronto, where I live now. And、um, and this is where Nexus was、um, based. So then、um, it turned out that you know I had like the best teachers、um, in the country because the guys in the Nexus they they were just. True inspirations, and when I was an undergrad student, it was during the period that they were touring a lot internationally. So they were working with, you know, Toru,、uh, Toru Takamitsu. They were going around playing with different orchestras, and they were like major improvisers and and had a lot of knowledge in different world traditions, right? So like Bob Becker. That everybody knows, you know, Bob is a virtuoso in more than one thing. I mean, people kind of know him as someone who plays the xylophone, but he also is a virtuoso on the tabla. So, so like Bob was my first teacher on the tabla. So, so I think from early on, I had this wide idea of what percussion is and what percussion can be. So then, as I went on in my own work.、Um, Playing different things, it just became a natural extension. As long as I found that they could make interesting sounds, or I could, you know, combine them in different ways and still use like the principle of percussion to to bring them into the musical family. So, so that was not like a difficult thing for me. And and you know, the thing is, I also discovered there are many other people who work. In similar ways, or they think in similar fashions as me when it comes to percussion. So I feel like there's like a huge family out there internationally that that people are sort of experimenting sound source, not necessarily percussion instruments, but you know different sounds as source for music making. And in some ways, more and more, that is the community. That I belong more, yeah. And I think as a as a percussionist, you're also very much into the theatrical aspects of percussion. And I, I saw your one of your teachers was Gaston Sylvester.、Um, so when was that in Taiwan, or was that a later influence? Uh, that was a little bit later. So I was talking about so my first teacher, my first major teacher in Taiwan, um, um, is Bonian Shi, and he was a student of Gaston Sylvest. So so Bonian was a true inspiration. So whatever he taught me, I thought, oh, you know, that's what I want to be. You know, th- I mean, I was a kid who never really. Travel outside of the island at this point, so so every and this is before the age of internet. So whatever I learn, I learn it through the teacher. So so I I was like, oh yeah, when I when I'm older, I I want to go and work with Gaston. So after my undergrad, I actually lived、um, in France for a year, and so this was a year that I that I was studying with Gaston Sylvest. Then later on, I got to work. Um, also with Jean-Pierre 
Wei, so the, one of the other members in the trio, and and then we've had um, opportunities to play with. And um, when I was in France, I, I also studied with this other teacher called François um, Bader. But François was um, François taught Tombeck. He passed away maybe twelve years ago, maybe ten years ago. He passed away. Um, so I had two teachers. Well, I had, and then also informally, I had worked with Jean Pierre. So, but I had the opportunity to to witness how they play together. So I think this is sort of um, way of working more in the theatrical milieu was of an interest to me. So the way that they were working with composer, although it included the traditional way of working, which means the composer comes and present a score, and then you try to play the score. That was one type of way of working. They also work with people who created ways of generating material in real time. So more like devising a work together. So it's like you improvise, you try out new ideas, then you might write down things that work, then from there you grow and make a larger work. Um, so, so this type of working was also interesting to me. And then later on, when I was in my doctoral program at UC San Diego, I met other people who also were kind of interdisciplinary artists. So they were trained both in music and in theater. So, um, so from that, I also got to sort of work in theater, not so much like, you know, in the pit playing music, supporting actors, but more like on stage playing mm. music and also playing some sort of role, more abstract kind of theater. I mean, that is very common, especially I think in Germany, there is a lot of theater that works that way. It's less common um, in North America, but I did have the experience of doing that. Um, so, so I think from early on, um, I kind of got used to the idea of how the body can be very expressive rather than just how the sound can be very expressive. So this concept of the sound is an extension of the body or the body is an extension extension of the sound is sort of mutually can be communicative so like like more recently i don't know if you follow um literature in um, music psychology so so uh, maybe like you know like seven years ago so this colleague of mine um, in Canada, actually an American scholar, he, he teaches at my master university, Michael Schutz. So he was a student of Michael Burrett when Michael Burrett was teaching in Northwestern. So he did a master's degree in percussion and he did a PhD in music psychology. And when he was doing his PhD in psychology, he used Michael Burrett as a subject to test the effects of long tone versus short tone. So he asked Michael Burrett to, you know, play 
long tongue on the marimba and then short tongue on the marimba and i think a staccato tone i think there were like three tones that michael had to yeah. play then is that what you explain about in the the article in yeah the exactly yeah 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 yeah. 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 yeah yeah so 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 that sort of gave me the idea of how what we see in fact is a very important part of what we understand especially when it comes to percussion where sort of the natural physics of the instrument is often um not complete in terms of what we want to express musically and what was the results of of his research so he found that people could really only understand long tone and short tone through the visual information and not through the audio information. So that's mm. kind of what yeah. Mike discovered. And I thought that was very uh, informative. And, you know, sometimes when I mentioned this study, <laughs> some percussionists will be, oh, don't say that. Like, we were hard, so hard to have different tones. What are you talking about? That they are not going to make any difference. It's only in how we look. Don't say that. I mean, I don't think it's completely true, especially on instruments like the timpani. Because, you know, on an instrument like timpani, there is a lot more possibility for timbre. And depending on where you hit in combination with the stroke type, you get many different kind of timbre. Yeah. And probably also the the motion is also creating a different approach to the instrument physically. So you you might also change a bit the way that that you approach the instrument and therefore the phrasing and everything. So I, I still remember when Stevens was in Denmark, I was very young and he made everyone stand with the back to the instrument And then he played different tones to show that you cannot make a staccato and a legato. So <laughs> that was also a shock for me at that time. <laughs> and of course, later on, we find out that maybe we don't need to to know exactly what is happening if we just have a clear feeling of what we want to express. Yeah, yeah. It's just so much of, um, you know, if we look at things scientifically, we can... Um, challenge a lot of conventional knowledge. Like so much of what we do is contextual. Mm. Yeah. What are the most important artistic questions you have asked yourself during your career? Well, um, I would say that more recently that has become more clear. I think when I was younger, that wasn't so clear to myself what was the most important thing to me. But I think now I could say that all the work that I have made recently and I will make in the future has to do with whether if a work is sustainable, that it provides, it adds to the sustainability of percussion. And what I mean by that is um, I want to make a piece of music that other people can play, other people want to play. I don't want to make a, a work that's only possible because I've been supported by a large institution and I have resources. I want to know that when I make an 
a piece of work. Even people who don't have resources as much as I do, they can still have access to this work. So it comes to mind. I saw a video with the、uh, the piece by Vivian Fung. The ice is talking from last year, and you play on two ice cubes.、Um, So、I suppose it's, it's three, but three, the, the, three, the, the、yeah, third one、yeah. is a little guy. One very small one. Yeah, if, I guess if you are living in a in a country with electricity or a very cold country, then you will be fine playing that、uh, in, in many ways.、Uh, can you say a little bit about the work and the idea behind it? Sure.、Uh, so this piece was a commission by the Ben Center. So Vivian Fang,、um, she's a Canadian composer who is based、um, in California. Um, she grew up in Alberta, so so when she was making this work, she wanted to do something that addresses sort of environmental issues. I think many people feel compelled these days to address the environment issue or、um, Black Lives Matters or some sort of more social and political movement that we are all involved with. So for her, she want well because she she was born Canadian. So the idea of the North, you know, eyes that's part of sort of the Canadian upbringing. So every kid will either skate or play street hockey at least, right?、Um, so so what she had in mind was these blocks of eyes are kind of like the skating ring. So so the the movement that you would do on these blocks, they kind of. Some of them they mirror, like what skaters would do, and the kind of sound that you would hear if you go skating, and how that can be sort of move into the musical world, but then also sort of an extension of that is you know about、um, the glacier、um, melting. So so where she, where she's from, just north of.、Um, Edmonton, it's some of the the glacier that's still like pretty close to where people live. Like you can like you know take a bus and go there. Um. So so she had visited this glacier on one of her trips with her parents, and so so she sort of witnessed how the glacier was melting, and that was like troubling to her. So she just wanted to bring all these ideas. Into a piece of music, and see where that would take her. <laughs> I actually recently learned that. You know, there are other sort of um, um, composers and performers that have worked、uh, with ice, especially from your part of the world, like people from Iceland and Sweden. That they are northern festivals where playing like ice sculptures is just yes, yes. part of the winter activities. Yeah, so it's probably not a foreign idea to you and to your upbringing. upbringing. I think also there's a lot of artists that works with the thing that Arctis is melting, but but I just thought it was a compelling piece. And and how is it?、Uh, is it written down or is it made graphically or how is it? So so it's、um, it's probably 
90% notated, so there are a mm -hmm. few sections that's not notated, but otherwise it's precisely notated. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the electronic part kind of um, helps with a piece a lot and also the amplification. But also initially, we probably spent a couple of weeks to, to experiment with a different way of making ice. Yeah. So so it turns out, you know, ice has different densities, and depending on the density, um, and how much they are being sort of um, defrosted, like it has different sound. So the sound actually changes quite a bit. Um, so like for example, you cannot make one of those blocks in one day. It takes like three days to make the block. Mm. But you want to make it not too thick because if it's too thick, um, I think you we don't hear the block as a resonance. We hear mostly the surfacing sound. And then you also want to wait for it to melt a little bit. Then you hear a little bit of the water sound when you are gliding on the ice. So, so like the timing of playing this piece is like everything. So you have to <laughs> get it out of the freezer and then, you know, you have to wait for half an hour, then you have to play the piece. And if you get it wrong, oh, so that's what happened in one of the recordings that I made. So I was recording in chunks and then finally I said, okay, I'm going to do a round through. So I did this round through. Then one of the blocks broke. Oh. So then, then I was like, oh, well, okay, I have a spare. So I took the spare out. So the spare was much bigger or much thicker. So I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess the, all the previous takes are not going to work. So then I'll just have to do it in one take. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so then I was like, oh, all these like, sections didn't, had nothing to do with the real thing because now I just have to play the whole thing in one take because the sounds are so different. I don't know if that's the one that you watched. There, there are two of yeah. them out there. One was Probably. a live performance and one was a recording. But both of them were one takes because... <laughs> Because the recording, I guess, the, the, the ice broke. Yeah. I guess you even have to ask for the temperature in the concert halls. <laughs> Make it perfect. Okay, I, I want to ask you also a little bit about your, your research. You have written quite a few articles also on theatrical percussion. Um, but how important are this artistic research for your approach to creating art? And which methods do you use? Hmm. So, um, yeah, I've been writing a little bit about sort of um, performance practice. So, and, and I think that the theater um, article was one of the first ones that I wrote. And this was actually um, coming from my uh, thesis research. So, um, after I studied with um, um, Gaston and Jean-Pierre in France, I wanted to find a way to make this repertoire um, more accessible to the performers because at that point, so so in the 90s, in the late 90s, um, before internet like blew up, there were very few people playing their repertoire because very often 
um, when you get the score, it's like hard to understand what's going on.、Mm. So I think that was a little bit of the problem. For example, with the music of Apiggies. I mean, now it's not. It's much more like detailedly notated because he has had people who、um, took on certain pieces and kind of annotated them with、mm. the people who play the pieces. And、um, and Apegis has made the annotated scores、um, that are in sort of finale available on his internet for free. But prior to this, all of、um, Apegis' scores were、um, managed by Salabert,、yes. and then Salabert was hard to actually access outside of France. Um, so, so there were not many people playing this repertoire, and and I thought a big part of it has to do with the score of not being very complete. So, like when you see the score, you you see a kind of I don't really know what the composer means here. I'm just gonna do what whatever I want because it's not clearly、um, specified. But but for people who have worked. With Apegis directly, they often will have to come to a very specific way of playing the score, and and so I think、um, the process of、um, just annotating the score and sort of understanding sort of the composer's intention、um, is important to. Clarify some of this kind of repertoire. If you just play straight from the score, there are always like places that you go. Is this what's supposed to happen?、Mm. Um, I think one exception would be like Cargo. I think Cargo's scores are very very clear, and he means what he says. So.、Mm. So one just needs to read the score very clearly, and then, and I would say the ninety-five percent of the time you go, oh yeah, that's that's what he <laughs> that means. Makes sense, yeah. yeah, but then then there will be other composers like Apriki's where you read the score. I think you only get sixty-five percent of the story. So I'm talking about the manuscripts. I'm not talking about、mm. the annotated scores that were released more recently. Yeah,、mm. but. Yeah. That means that in in former time, if you were trying to play this piece far away from the composer, then you could also say that you had more freedom because there was no final result. So, do you think something is lost in getting more connection with the YouTube, where we are more globalized now and we all know kind of the same versions or the same ideas? Yeah, I think you are absolutely right. I mean, I mean. The, the This is sort of a danger, right? That we、mm. all have to consider. Like every time when we want to play a piece, and we turn on YouTube and we try to, you know, speed up the learning process. What we also kind of lose is that innocence of、uh, opportunity for exploration, and just making something that's、um, truly personal and authentic. And so I do think that. When people decide to check out pieces on YouTube, they need to know what they are gaining and what they are losing.、Mm. I think、yeah. that's for sure the case, and you're absolutely right there. Yeah. 
So I saw a little uh, lecture you made called Memory in Motion. Uh, a recent lecture is, is... Do you want to talk a little bit about that one? Um, sure. So uh, this was a research project that was supported by the, the um, Quebec um, Research Council. Um, and basically, um, it's the... Um, so in Canada and also in Europe, this sort of idea of artistic research has taken sort of different directions. So in Canada, the more common concept is called research creation. So in the process of research, you also create new work. So this was a research creation project. So the research was about understanding um, how to memorize percussion ensemble music because you know when we play solo music a lot of people play from memory especially if you're playing like keyboard music because there's a huge history of you know pianists playing hours of repertoire from memory so by extension like when people play keyboard music which is pitch driven like if you memorize a piece of music it's like not a huge deal um then when people start memorizing non-pitch music so people like Steve, then it becomes a more sort of rare thing to do. But very few ensembles actually play um, ensemble music from memory because of, you know, there's a huge risk of... Yeah, you have to trust each other. <laughs> <laughs> you have to trust each other. And and you if even if you want to improvise your way back into the game, you will need to know many, many other things in order to do that. So yeah. it's like a huge risk taking. Um, so... So... Um, I just wanted to know how that will be, how the process will be, and um, and also to to record some music. So this actually came out as a DVD during the pandemic, and I don't know if you have heard this yet, but I'll I'll send you a copy. So we recently um, released the Emma's um, version of Persafasa on mm -hmm. Apple Play. So um, if you have a surround system at home, you can hear the recording. So oh, yeah. this is a DVD that came out um, last year, but like three months ago, I released the MS um, surround recording of Persafasa. And um, I mean, this was, I would say that this is probably like the best recording I have um, produced in my career. Um, we actually recorded every single note in the score. So you know that's not playing just like two hands. That's like playing many different <laughs> takes because, you mm -hmm. know, at the end of Persafasa, when you have the different specialization, we did all the instruments separately. So you could really hear um, the, the, the different sounds bouncing around in different directions. Um, and then we had recorded that in 7.1. So, so you could really kind of sense the different ways of traveling and it's quite fantastic. So we've been waiting for a long time for the technology to become available. So this is like very exciting that I was able to put this out. And um, I don't know if you have a surround system at home. Um, I also made like a private edition 
<laughs> of a <laughs> MS recording um, produced for headphones. So uh -huh. um, so you could also um, like hear it yeah, through yeah, your yeah. headphone. Yeah. From from that memory in motion lecture, I got the the idea that that you're using your theatrical background in the idea of creating memorable events in the percussion music. Is that true? You mean actively or just through my creative work? Yeah, just to to ha connect the different things that are happening in the music to some kind of. Um, Uh, non-abstract or abstract uh, gesture or idea or maybe I was mistaken <laughs> well I I think there's something that I do probably um, regularly but I don't know if I um, consciously make that an interpretation goal when I make versions of mm. performance But that's an interesting idea. I like it. <laughs> I think I think you said something like that in the beginning with the with the reference to the to the different uh, psychological as aspects. Right. So so this maybe has to do with how I think about different gestures reminds um, audience of different things and it helps them to make their own connection. So mm. when they see. For example, like we we think about a piece like Coparel. Then we think of the different gestures that we make on the body. And because everybody has a body, so when you touch your own body, there's a lot of sort of personal reflection and reading on what that might mean. Right? So even if it will make no sound, so that if I do this and I make no sound, Somebody who is watching this, they would, they could feel that because they have a face and they might touch their face. And when they touch their own face, you will make different sounds. So, for example, if you touch your face with the same motion that I do, you will make sound because you have a beer. Yeah, that's true. Right? So <laughs> even a large one at the moment. <laughs> yeah. So 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 people will have different reading into what an abstract gesture would be because we share this common. Hmm. common language of the body yeah so so sometimes that could help make sense of materials yeah for sure i think sometimes i if we try to explain what is the perp or what can percussion do then i say that we 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 explore motions and if people listen to a emotion and a, a connection to a sound then then can maybe also experience their own motions as represented in sound and give them another approach to how they move and how they they are in <laughs> in the society for mm. sure yeah 
okay, let's uh, time is running, but let's uh, have a, you have a new project called Transplanted Roots Research Symposium. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Sure. So I think the most important thing is Transplanted Roots is happening this year in May. Um, so, uh, it's happening at, uh, University of California, San Diego in May. Um, and, uh, the proposal, if you're interested in submitting a proposal, it's, uh, I think the deadline is February 15th. And this was a project that I started, um, in 2015. So in 2014 and 15, I took two sabbaticals. And um, during my sabbatical, one of the things I did was um, I became a yoga teacher. So I took a yoga teaching training uh, during my first sabbatical. And I was just kind of thinking, you know, I, I love doing yoga because when I do yoga, it's like, Having a med- meditation while you are, you know, doing different movements, and it sets your mind free to imagine things. And um, when you're really busy, it's sometimes hard to be very imaginative because most of the time I'm trying to do this, 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 and that. And and by the time I'm done with my list, my brain has no creative energy left. And but during the sabbatical, I had much more time just for myself and allowing my mind to wander, basically. And and um, one of these moments when I was doing yoga, I was like, "Oh yeah, I should do something that's that's like transplanted roots, where people get to come together to present." you know, their work, but not exactly like basic. So like much more intimate and it's more about sort of creative research or actual research or just presenting their work. And this will be a great platform for people to meet. Mm. For people to meet, meaning that people who think alike, they will have a reason to get together, you know, once a while and and also just to expand um, the community, but in a slightly different way. You know, PASIC is great. I, I go to PASIC and when I go to PASIC, I'm on a high because I see that thousands of drummers, I'm on a high, but, but um, at the same time, it's like overwhelming. So many people, yes. <laughs> it, it's overwhelming, right? It's overwhelming. So, so you end, you end up, I end up saying hi to like, oh, oh, and running around giving hugs to people. But sometimes I don't really have the opportunity just to sit down and discuss things and to listen and and um, I just think that will be very important to do. Hmm. So, um, so I. I I call up my friends and say, oh, I have this idea. Do you want to join in? So so people wanted to do it. So I was the first one to do it. But because other people also supported this idea. So Vanessa Tomlinson um, did the second edition and in Australia. And Ivan Manzania did the third edition 
um, in Mexico. And now Steve is going to take the fourth edition at UCSD. And, and I think after that, I'm going to do the next one. And um, then we also have another host interested in Portugal. Um, so, so people are volunteering to take on um, this um, relay, this torch. And I think that's just really fantastic. Yeah. And it's a worldwide uh, connection. Yeah, also. exactly. So, so I, we actually get like maybe like half of the people to come back each time. So maybe not mm -hmm. consecutively, but, but when, when I go to transplanted roots, I, I, I see, you know, 30% of familiar faces and then, mm. you know, 60 to 70% new faces. And we want to keep bringing in new faces. It's just, the the symposium is quite short and so there are not so many like slots for presentation hmm. um and because we want everybody to be able to attend everything so you know like at PASIC they will schedule yeah, yeah. many different things at the same time so that doesn't really exist um in transplanted roots we go there and we sit to listen to people present one after another and then mm. we talk about it and we have meals together that's kind of what happens yeah yeah that's really nice it sounds a bit like a nordic percussion festival but we also really try to have time for for the meeting of the different people i think that's that's so important and and often at festivals you don't have time to even see what else is happening so Sounds like a really, really good approach. And also the next questions I wanted to ask you is about community building. So I guess you already answered kind of that. Um, but I think you have been very active in, in this work to create communities and also in collaboration with Stephen. And um, during the, the corona, you had this uh, Root and Rhizomes mentorship seminars, and that was a huge inspiration for many percussionists. So... What do you think is most important in building up a community? Well, I think it's important that people feel like their voices can be heard. So it's not it's not about me, it's about us. Mm. Um so I think that's important. Um to have Well, I, I usually like to test the idea a little bit. Like I would say, oh, I have this idea. What do you think? Um, and then if, you know, if I run an idea through 10 people and and only two people responded, say yes, then I'm like, oh, maybe it's not the best thing. Okay, I'll try a different idea. So so if we have an idea and everybody says, oh, yeah, fantastic. Let's do this. Then I feel like it, it has legs, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, the, I have sort of, musically, I have two communities. So I have the community of percussion, and then I have the community of contemporary music, right? So one that's with more with composers and with other people who are fascinated with contemporary music. So so Transplanted Roots and Roots and Rhizomes is, is a service to to people who are in in the percussion world for me and then 
in terms of the contemporary music world, um, that's through my work with this other festival called Soundscape. So I direct mm. this festival in Italy every year. So that's sort of my community work for the contemporary music. Yeah. And um, how do you see this develop in the future? I mean, now let another question. So. A lot of the networks we are making today in the contemporary music scene and in the in the modern percussion scene is is very worldwide. We need to travel to to find our our colleagues that are doing the same kind of stuff. Um, and in the future, we have to think more about sustainability, and we maybe also have to think more about being locally uh, anchored. Um, so, do you do any work to kind of secure that local connection? In your area, well, a lot of the work that I do locally um, is with my students and with other colleagues in Toronto. Um, so I I do participate in some local organizations like New Music Concerts or Continuum, and then sort of nationally. Um, in other parts of Canada. But but to address this issue of like carbon footprint and sustainability for international travel to make arts or music, um, I believe that for what we do and what we believe in, traveling is still integral. Like I want to come to Denmark to hear you play and to, you know, to hear how you play inside the context of your environment. And I don't think there's anything that could really replace that experience. Mm. But what I think that's, that can become more sustainable is sort of the process of working. So for example, like if we were to collaborate on a piece together traditionally, like um, I might go to, um, visit you three times or whatever in order to make a piece. And I think because of the pandemic, we have figured out so much of the work can be done remotely. Mm. So instead of like taking three trips to make one piece, maybe we'll only need to take one trip. And then a lot of the um, late words can be done in collaboration over Zoom. So I think people have figured out how to make work productively and efficiently sort of remotely and this is going to reduce the carbon footprint but but as an artist (laughs) i mean this is probably (laughs) me talking selfishly but um i don't think i could just give up traveling for the rest of my life Mm. i don't think i I can Maybe we can also argue that the thing that we travel around makes us more able to build together people from different countries and different cultures. And if we can give that back to the to the audience, then somehow we have a, a clearer conscience, at least. Yeah, but but I do like when I go to tra- um, when I go to Europe, I I try to do more than one thing. Mm. I don't I don't like to go just to do one thing because then I feel like oh that's like too much traveling. Yes. And so when I go I try to go for you know three weeks 
so then to do a few things together, and、mm. then I feel like, okay, I can kind of more justify this. Yeah. Okay, we're getting、uh, to an end, but I would like to hear if you have、um, any advice to young professionals. Well, I think that for people who are students right now. Um, or about to finish school, it may seem like things are not clear, and things may feel like it's in trouble. But I actually think it's a time for new opportunities, and、um, I would just say that in the next while, I think people. Um, once we get out of this, we are going to be right. I think by the summer, that things will be great.、Um, I think young people will have a, a lot of opportunity to try out new things. So, so you should take this last bit of the pandemic as a hibernation to really sort of、um, hone in on your skills and creatively to make a lot of work. So when opportunities come out, you can just go for it. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good final word. <laughs> yeah. And、uh, thank you very much for participating here, and uh, uh, I hope you have a good time also. <laughs> for sure. Thank you so much, Henry. <laughs>